Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest、uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the twenty second of July. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna, and I'm taking you through to nine thirty this morning. A special thank you to the crew from Solidarity Breakfast for yet another informative、um, breakfast program here on 3CR. So coming up on today's program in the second part of the show, I'll be speaking with Reem Yunus, Palestinian activist、um, and socialist based here in Melbourne, about the recent aggression of Israel against、uh, the the worshippers of Al Aqsa Mosque in、um, in Jerusalem.、Um, so obviously,、uh, listeners will be aware of the.、Um, Recent event where two people snuck、um, some guns into the mosque and、uh, murdered two Israeli soldiers. As a result, Israel has upped its、um, aggression against the Palestinian community. They've instituted some.、Um, Metal detectors. They've prevented、um, young men or men under the age of fifty from praying at that particular mosque. Of course, it has particular significance to Israel as well, or, or to Jewish people as well as to Muslim people. So that's what we're looking at in the second part of the program. Of course, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web at all the w's dot a a w l dot org dot a u. You can find us on so、uh, on social media on Facebook and on Twitter, and we post regularly about news and current affairs from the Asia Pacific region,、uh, almost exclusively from the labour movement, so that you know the ways, the many ways in which workers are organising across Asia. If you want to ring us, you can on nine double six three seven two double seven. Um, uh, quite a bit has happened over the last、um, week. Last on the program last week, we told you that AAWL was、um, hosting and and had convened an international committee in relation to global picket line to start organising、uh, international industrial action. So industrial action across borders. That meeting happened on Tuesday, the fifteenth of July. It was hugely successful. There is much to report. About the developments in Global Picket Line and that international committee,、um, there were approximately six or seven countries represented on that call,、uh, with others waiting to get on the call.、Um, But what we will do is, in the coming weeks, we'll、um, actually provide a report and information on the developments in that particular space, given the significance of the.、Um, The achievements of that、uh, international committee. So going forward,、um, there we will be launching a campaign in the car industry, similar to the work that we did in the airlines industry, where we brought、um, three particular disputes together, but it, where it involved twenty cities across the world. So we'll be bringing you that in coming weeks. It is four minutes past nine o'clock here on Asia Pacific Currents. It's time now from for news from around the region. We're going to kick off in India. Activists in India have recently raised outrage over the number of deaths in New Delhi's sewer system.
the Prohibition of Employment as Manual Scavengers and Their Rehabilitation Act. That's the title of the Act, uh, 2013, so that's when it was enacted. That particular legislation prohibits anyone from allowing a human to go into a sewer. Yet, in the last 100 days, 39 workers have died while cleaning those sewers. And it's not the first incident of its kind, rather a part of regular occurrences. The New Delhi government is not taking any action, claiming the matter falls under the local government's office. The other thing that government officials, the local government, the provincial government, um, the federal government, so government at all levels, the other thing that they're doing is denying that people are going into the sewers because of the uh, legislation that's in place. Activists also allege that despite providing documents on 56 men who have died in the sewers, cleaning the sewers, the authorities have not identified them, preventing their families from getting any compensation. These workers are largely Dalits, that is, the untouchables. So being organised is the only way for these workers to collectively fight for health and safety at work. And we've seen very, very good examples where the municipal workers in Mumbai have organised in this same way. These are street cleaners and street sweepers. Moving to Iran. Workers at the giant Haftape sugarcane plantation and mill complex in the southern Iranian city of Shush formed an independent union in 2008 following a 42-day strike to demand long-standing wage arrears. Those union leaders have endured arrests, prison and have been blacklisted. Now these very same workers and their union are again facing repression as they demonstrate to claim massive wage and benefit arrears. Conditions have worsened since the company was privatised in a murky deal in 2015, whose details have never really been brought to light. Since October last year, workers have had to repeatedly hold strikes and demonstrations to demand payment of wages and benefits, most recently in June this year. Thousands of workers have not been paid for about two months, and some of them haven't been paid for as many as four months. Pension benefits have been suspended uh, because the company's failure to pay into the state social security scheme. The Haftapir workers and their union are demanding full payment of wage and benefit arrears, recognition of the union as the workers' legal representative and the company's return to government ownership. Now in Myanmar. On the 26th of June this year, six men in Myanmar were detained and charged with being in contact with an unlawful association under a particular provision of the Unlawful Associations Act. That's section 17, subsection 1. Not that any of you are going to look it up. So it's a law that's been in place Uh, since colonial times. They were detained after attending a ceremony in an area controlled by the ethnic armed organisation, the Ta'ang National Liberation Army. And among the six were three journalists that were there doing their job. The Unlawful Associations Act is often used by the Myanmar army to arbitrarily imprison people from ethnic minority and and conflict-affected areas. Myanmar's military has previously launched large-scale offensives against the TNLA and fighting between the two continues. 
if convicted under this Act, those uh, the workers, the three journalists and their uh, support team, which are, which is the other three that make up the six, uh, they each face between two and three years imprisonment as well as a fine. A lack of independence of the judiciary and arbitrary use of the Unlawful Associations Act makes the situation for the six detained individuals particularly worrisome. In order to undertake their work, journalists need to be able to report from both sides of a conflict. On the 27th of June, 25 news outlets, organisations and journalist networks published an open letter to the President, State Councillor and Commander-in-Chief of the Myanmar Army. The letter described the arrests as restricting and censoring the press and argued that all people in Myanmar should be able to receive information from regions controlled by ethnic armed organisations. The arrest of these three journalists signals the alarming decline of press freedom. Despite the election of a civilian-led government, Myanmar remains a hostile place for journalists and human rights defenders to operate. So they're also facing some defamation charges and there is also widespread use of the Telecommunications Act as further repression against journalists and freedom of speech. Harassment using the criminal justice system is a tactic frequently used to delegitimise, undermine and punish the work of journalists and human rights defenders. Um, and just for your information, uh, Journalists International, JI, is supporting uh, the plight of the three um, journalists but also the three supporting crew. Now to Cambodia. More than a year ago, on the 1st of July 2016, 208 workers of the Chung Fai knitwear factory in Phnom Penh suddenly found themselves unemployed without notice, without severance pay and without even receiving their final salaries for the previous month. Left in extremely dire situation, these workers, largely women, are still fighting for justice. As they stitch clothes for UK brands Marks and & Spencer and Bon Marche, as well as a Canadian brand Nygaard, they demand these brands take responsibility and ensure the legally due payments that their supplier failed to provide. While Bon Marche contacted its supplier, the other two brands flatly refused any involvement. Organising within unions and definitely not organising in NGOs or social justice organisations is the only way to win workplace demands and that is what there is facing these Cambodian garment industry workers. Although the pressure to organise in NGOs in, in the garment industry across Asia at the moment is so, so strong. Moving now to South Korea. Unionised workers at Kia Motors voted to go on strike after wage talks with management broke down on Tuesday. The vote comes as the carmaker struggles with slowing sales in major markets such as China and the United States. In the vote that was held um, from Monday to Tuesday, 72% of Kia's around just in excess of 28,000 strong union workforce agreed to walk out in case of no agreement being reached with management over those wages. The Labor Union demands the company raise workers' monthly basic wages by about $136 US and offer a bonus of 30% of the company's full-year operating profit earned in 2016. It's such an advanced demand. It's, it's extraordinary that actually the workers together are bargaining for a percentage of profits. Meanwhile, Hyundai Motor has has done almost exactly the same thing. So that workplace is about 50,000 workers. They they voted and the, the vote got up on Friday. So on Friday they voted to go on strike in the event that um, 
wage talks broke down and their demands are almost identical. So again, $136 a month US a month um, of a wage increase uh, with approximately 30% of the company's net profit in 2016 um, as bonus payments. And our last story is uh, the, tra- the tragedy of um, the trial in Elijah's case. Uh, this is uh, Elijah Doherty, who is the young Aboriginal kid that was killed in Kalgoorlie last year. So less than a year ago, on the 29th of August 2016, 14-year-old Elijah Doherty was stalked, run down and killed. It was clearly a race-based hate crime. And the incident itself led to riots and massive protests in Kalgoorlie. Yesterday, Mark Donnelly was found not guilty for manslaughter and rather convicted of causing death by dangerous driving instead. And that's a charge that he pleaded guilty to. He was sentenced to three years imprisonment and will likely be released on parole in February next year. He told police he was chasing Elijah Doherty too close but didn't mean to drive over him. That's what the court heard in the trial. This is yet another tragic and stark example of the racism, both personal and structural, that Aboriginal people face in Australia. And it's one of many cases where the murders of Aboriginal people, the murderers rather, of Aboriginal people, are able to walk more or less freely and with impunity. Activists right across the country have called rallies In Melbourne, there's a rally tomorrow at two o'clock at the State Library calling for justice for Elijah and I really do urge everybody to get out there and participate in that. It's 14 minutes past nine o'clock. That is the news from around the region. This is Asia Pacific Currents and I'm Giselle Hanna. I'm going to go to some community announcements and then... Uh, my feature interview for this morning, which is with Reem Yunus, Palestinian and socialist activist here in Melbourne. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. You're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Give money back to the people that give music to you. It is 16 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. Joining me now is Reem Yunus, Palestinian activist and socialist based here in Melbourne, but discussing Israel's uh, particularly recent aggression against Palestinians um, in Jerusalem. Welcome, Reem, to the program this morning. Thank you for having me. 
So, of course, um, the recent aggression centres on Al-Aqsa Mosque. Can you tell us what's happening there? Um, what's happening now is an uh, escalation of the resistance that the Palestinians feel that they have to do, especially the Jerusalemites, being uh, finding themselves alone uh, in the world in against this uh, biggest um, military machine of uh, Israel. What happened is, like, if we if you want to get a context, is last Friday exactly on the 14th of July, <coughs> three Palestinians uh, from the city of Um Al Fahim, which is a town, a vi- one of the biggest. Uh, predominantly Arab-occupied towns in uh, Palestine 48, uh, which is the country that all the imperialists will refer to to as Israel. These three Palestinians, um, they basically, because being uh, called Israeli Arabs, and I put that between quotations, um, they are allowed to enter um, Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa Mosque freely, so what they've done is uh, they've go- gone there and they uh, performed their prayer and the dawn prayer. And it's in the time when there was no, almost no people before 7 a.m. <clears throat> they had rifles with them. Um, I don't know how they got them. And uh, they killed two Israeli soldiers. Um from a short distance. Uh, of course, the soldiers were uh, stunned and, and shocked, but in the meantime, the rest of the soldiers came and killed them uh, at the spot, that these three uh, Palestinians. <clears throat> this made headlines in the whole world as a provocation by the Palestinians. It took Israel by surprise. It took the world by surprise. Um, we should remember that we have Palestinians killed every day not Israeli soldiers, but Palestinians killed every day. All are civilians, all are unarmed, uh, and especially in the last three days before <coughs> these three men were killed, there were a lot of people around Mukhayam at Dehesha, which is a refugee camp next to Bethlehem. Um, uh, kids were killed there. There were other two young men killed in the West Bank, and a three-year-old girl from Gaza also died while waiting, um, long waiting for a permit, uh, because she was a cancer patient, to be a permit to be transferred to the West Bank hospitals to be treated for cancer, she died. You know, so you can see why these Palestinians, whether we are all Palestinians, even those they call uh, Israeli Arabs, why they were pushed to the brink, and they have done so. Israel took that as um, <clears throat> as an excuse. Uh, on the same day, they uh, detained the imam of the mosque, of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, for a few hours for interrogation. Um, then they released him in the same day, and they didn't let anyone in. It, it is told in history that these three days of uh, the closure uh, of Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, the whole compound, uh, is the first time that it happened uh, since 1969. Um, you remember 1967 is the occupation of the East Jerusalem, <clears throat> which was part of the West Bank uh, up until then. And uh, the, these holy shrines were always 
until now being run by the Waqf, Islamic Waqf, which is like an Islamic trust um, that have been doing that during the Jordanian rule during the um, uh, the Jordanian rule before 1967, and continued to do that uh, only over the Muslim holy sites at the time. Well, the closure made a lot of anger, and not to top that off, the Israelis uh, uh, erected um, metal detectors in front of the mosque. So, if you want to enter the compound, you have to enter through metal detectors. Um, this is a humiliation. Uh, it is seen by the Palestinians, and I agree with them. <clears throat> we have the right, they say, we have the right for worship, um, regardless and without any restrictions. Um, so in defiance to that, they are sitting uh, in around the mosque uh, for weeks now. It's been, no, it's a week exactly. Um and spraying in the street because they are refusing to enter via the metal detectors. Uh, Israelis answer saying, no, we allow the people who are above 56 to enter. Well, the most of the population, whether in Jerusalem or the West Bank or <clears throat> everywhere in Palestine, we have a majority of over 50% young population. So even those who go... Uh, um, who are over 56, they have to go through metal detectors. So it's all lies for the media. Uh, so the Palestinians are staging a, a large sit-in. It never happened um, before uh, because they called on uh, all Palestinians from all the West Bank cities and villages. And not only that, even buses upon buses from the Arab populations, whether they were Muslims or Christians, were coming over in buses um, from their towns in uh, Palestine 48 to um, to join in these protests. So at the moment, uh, there are um, <clears throat> the the Israeli soldiers are barricading in front of uh, around the compound, uh, a distance around the compound, and from time to time they start altercations to provoke the Palestinians. And there were bloody clashes on Thursday night and Friday night, you know, uh, Friday even during the day, because, you know, Friday is the Muslim holy day when they have to perform the prayer. Uh, the provocation was the worst yesterday, and we had three Palestinians killed uh, uh, from that vicinity. Uh, three of them are, um, they are identified as, one of them was 17-year-old Muhammad Sharaf, and the other is 20-year-old Muhammad Abu Ghanam. And there is the third one, uh, Muhammad Khalaf. Uh, he's from Ramallah, but he was also going there. And he's a Zayt University, I think, second-year student. Also, he felt that succumbing to his wounds. Um, <clears throat> an extra thing I'd like to tell our audience, uh, quickly, the angry protesters, once these martyrs, were declared dead in the hospital, quickly they smuggled their bodies to their families for fear that maybe the Israelis, as always, have been doing since <clears throat> years now, in recent years, they will confiscate the bodies, keep them in uh, deep freezers, and refuse to give them back to their families. So uh, it's an extra punishment for the families who cannot even say it's good goodbye. So actually, these... Um, bodies of the martyrs were uh, buried quickly 
not even given their mothers, and I feel with the mothers, to the chance to to have a uh, last look on them for fear that the Israelis will um, confiscate their bodies. So the anger and the escalation is being uh, really intense. Um, I'm following the news uh, around the clock, and it is really worrying. But the the slogans are here, and the spirit of resistance and defiance that I hear from um, the Palestinians uh, around the Jerusalem uh, Al-Aqsa compound is really, really heartwarming. So this particular the area in Jerusalem where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is is particularly significant <coughs> to both Muslims and, and Jewish people. So some and people Christians. and Christians, the people yep. are saying that actually this increased aggression is uh, is cover for Israel asserting more control over the, the this holy site known to Israelis as the Temple Mount. What do you, do you think that's the case? Yes, that's that's very true, and that's what actually spontaneously and um, you know by instinct all the Palestinians understand on the ground over there. So it's not a religious war; it's actually political. You're 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 absolutely right, and analysts who said that are absolutely right. Israel, since they <coughs> uh, extended their occupation to East Jerusalem, Jerusalem in 1967. For years and, and upon years, they have been trying to uh, assert a new matter of fact of making Jerusalem their um, capital, which all the world, um, at least the uh, the United Nations and all these organizations, international organizations, refuse. Um, in, back in 1981, the Israelis uh, annexed East Jerusalem, and proclaimed its sovereignty over there. But that was, and of course it was rejected worldwide. And the um, that fact, that being uh, rejected worldwide, and, and uh, the fact that the balance of power, especially if you look at now Trump in office, it wasn't in the Israelis' favor there. Um, you have to remember that the relationship between Israel and American imperialism is like American imperialism is the master and um, uh, the Zionist Israelis are the child and sometimes the child try to defy, try to push the limits, but uh, actually who puts the plug is actually the American and how much they allow <coughs> to happen <coughs> in order to keep the faith as the brokers of the two-state solution, brokers of peace. <coughs> and that's only because of their interest. Israelis continued to um, to try to Judaize the whole area of East Jerusalem, slowly, slowly, but surely. So a lot of um, hundreds and thousands of residential compounds have been built over the years. Um, now, there was a, a, a period of the Obama administration where this um, Judaization, or at least building the residential um, uh, settlements for the Israelis was um, not halted, I won't say halted, but at least slowed down. Um, One, because Obama and the international community wouldn't allow it. Um, uh, For example, uh, we have to remember that 
only uh, in uh, last year, the UNESCO uh, announced that uh, Jerusalem and East uh, East Jerusalem is a heritage site for the uh, and a recognized heritage site for the Palestinians and <coughs> and Muslims in particular. So that angered, of course, the Israelis and the Americans at the time. With Trump coming to office and Netanyahu pushing for more assertion of the Israeli um, sovereignty over uh, Jerusalem, um, we can see that Netanyahu got the green light from uh, Trump even during his uh, election campaigns when he was implying that he will move um, the, the American embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem. Now, this step hasn't materialized, but it certainly gave um, a very boost of confidence that they wanted um, to uh, increase their aggression and their, uh, mat- you know, mat- matters on the ground, how they try to to increase the res- residential um, presence of the Israelis and kicking out and demolishing houses of the Palestinians have been also uh, increased and hastened, if you like. For example... um, I'm so sorry, Rain. We we are literally out of time now. I'm so, so sorry. Um, But what what we will do is we'll post a more complete version of this um, interview later so that listeners can hear the end of it. But it really is, it's 9.30, almost 9.31. It is all we've got time for on um, Asia-Pacific Current. So I'm going to quickly go to one community announcement and then Palestine Remembered. We'll be back next Saturday from 9 o'clock with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.